0: I'll invite you now to stand with me as we read uh, from God's word this morning. I'm going to start in verse 31 and read through verse 35. This is the dream that Nebuchadnezzar has. That's what we're reading at this point. Daniel says to the king, You saw, O king, and behold, a great image. This image, mighty and of exceeding brightness, stood before you, and its appearance was frightening. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, the gold, all together were broken in pieces and became like the chaff of the summer threshing floors. And the wind carried them away so that not a trace of them could be found. But the stone that struck the image became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you today that we can gather together to worship you, to celebrate what you are doing through our church, to study your word, and to be reminded on this Sanctity of Human Life Sunday, as so many other churches will, that our work is not finished So God, we are grateful today for the Crisis Pregnancy Center and the great work that they do and the many volunteers from our church that give their time and energy through that ministry. God, we pray that you would rid our land of the scourge of abortion. We ask, God, that you would cause revival to take place in our country, that we would once again value that which is most precious. Every human being created in the image of God for your glory. So God, as we partner with the Crisis Pregnancy Center, would you, would you bless them, we pray. Show us more ways that we can continue to stand for life, we ask. Help us now, God, as we turn to your word, as we recognize that all things in this world are temporal and that Jesus the eternal cornerstone of God who fills this earth for all eternity, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. This morning's sermon concerns a statue and a stone. You may feel like, well, that's kind of a weak title for this sermon. the, The intention is for us I think from the outset and why I wanted to just read the vision from the outset is the intention is for us to recognize that the power is not in the vision. The power of what's happening here in Daniel chapter 2 is not in this great, and it is described as great, this great image that Nebuchadnezzar dreams. It is merely an image that shows us the great power of our God. That is what chapter two is about from beginning to end. And it seems as if, again, it is a long chapter. There's a lot of build up to it. And so we're gonna have to get to it very quickly this morning. But even as we build up to the dream and Daniel's interpretation of the dream, and then what follows the interpretation of the dream, we have to recognize this is a story about God and how he is all powerful and how what he is doing through redemptive history that he is telling a story ultimately about him redeeming people for himself and that all we see in this world, even that which we think is so powerful that it will never pass away, will one day be like the chaff of the summer threshing floor, blown away, never to be remembered. First, in this first section, there's really two sections of this chapter, we see that the Lord always has an answer to the tough questions. Where we left off in Daniel chapter 1, if you weren't here with us last week, is Daniel... Many other young people from uh, J- Israel, from, the, from Judah, were taken into captivity, taken into Babylon, and placed into the service of the king. And we see in chapter one their dedication to the Lord, their desire to remain holy, even though they are exiles in that land, and that the Lord blesses that desire for holiness and places them in position of prominence in Babylon. And that's where chapter one ends. It ends with this kind of ending of the training story of Daniel. Chapter two picks up at the at the really about three years later, what probably amounts to some of the first months of Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego being out of training and now serving uh, there in those positions that were given to them in Babylon. We're told, let's read verses 1 through 11. In the second year of the reign of Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar had dreams. His spirit was troubled and his sleep left him. Then the king commanded that the magicians, the enchanters, the sorcerers, and the Chaldeans be summoned to tell the king his dreams. So they came in and stood before the king. And the king said to them, I had a dream and my spirit is troubled to know the dream. Then the Chaldeans said to the king in Aramaic, "'O king, live forever, tell your servant the dream, "'and we will show the interpretation.' "'The king answered and said to the Chaldeans, "'The word from me is firm. "'If you do not make known to me the dream "'and its interpretation, you shall be torn limb from limb, "'and your houses shall be laid in ruins. "'But if you show the dream and its interpretation, "'you shall receive from me gifts and rewards "'and great honors. "'Therefore, show me the dream and its interpretations.'" They answered the king the second time and said, let the king tell his servants the dream and we will show the interpretation. The king answered and said, I know with certainty that you are trying to gain time because you see that the word for me is firm. If you do not make the dream known to me, there is but one sentence for you. You have agreed to speak lying and corrupt words before me till the times change. Therefore, tell me the dream and I will show that uh, you can show me the interpretation. The Chaldeans answered the king and said, there is not a man on earth who can meet the king's demands for no great and powerful king has asked such a thing of any magician or enchanter or Chaldean. The thing that the king asked is difficult and no one can show it to the king except the gods whose dwelling is not with flesh. So the setting here is Nebuchadnezzar. In his third year, as, or in his, his second year of reign, likely the third year since he rose to power, um, and so he rose to power uh, at the same time that Daniel is being taken into captivity. We're now in his second year of reign, but the third year since, so there's, there's a little bit of math you kind of have to do, uh, but we're, we're in his second, third year of reign, and he has a dream. This would not have been uncommon in ancient Babylon for kings or rulers to have dreams and demand interpretation. The interpretation of dreams in ancient times was very important, specifically for rulers. We go all the way back to Genesis and the time of the pharaohs in Genesis, and we see pharaohs demanding the interpretation of dreams, guys like Joseph. So this was commonplace in the ancient world. What makes this event stand out from all the others is Nebuchadnezzar won't tell anyone what he dreamed. Now there's two ways to approach this. First is that Nebuchadnezzar, like so many of us likely do, we wake up in the morning having known we dreamed something, but no idea what it is that we dreamed right? That's one of the possibilities. But that doesn't really explain his anger here towards the, those he's called to interpret the dream. So it seems as if this is a test for the wise men, magicians, sorcerers, Chaldeans, these people that are listed uh, in Babylon. It seems as if this is a test for him. He's had an important dream and he calls them and says, I not only want you to tell me what the dream means, but I want you to tell me what it is I dream." Now that seems like a fairly significant test. And they go back and forth over these 11 verses saying, well, if you'll tell us the dream, we'll tell you the interpretation. And I mean, anybody can kind of come up with what sounds like a plausible, plausible or reasonable interpretation uh, to, a, to a symbolic dream. And so Nebuchadnezzar says, no, I want you to tell me the dream and the interpretation. And if you don't, I'm going to kill you in a very terrible way, and I'm going to burn your houses down. So he basically threatens them and their families. says, you've got to tell me not only the interpretation, but you have to tell me the dream. They are unable to do so. But remember I said at the, at the outset that this is a story about God. And verse 11 affirms this, because even the wise men, these are pagan Wise men, pagans, sorcerers, magicians, Chaldeans. In verse 11, they say only the gods. Now they're speaking in their understanding, right? So they're not talking about the one God of heaven, but here's what they recognize. Only gods could do this. There is no human being that can tell you what it is you dreamed. We don't have the ability to do that. We have the ability to tell you the interpretation, but not the dream itself. So then, what follows is Nebuchadnezzar is going to be true to his word. He says, I said I was going to kill you if you didn't tell me the dream. And so he gives a decree that everybody is going to die, leading to that all the wise men are going to die, leading to Daniel and his companions, who were kind of categorized in this group, being caught up in this purge of Babylonian wise men. Look at verses 12 through 16. Because of this, the king was angry and very furious and commanded that all the wise men of Babylon be destroyed. So the decree went out and the wise men were about to be killed and they sought Daniel and his companions to kill them. Then Daniel replied with prudence and discretion to Ariok, the captain of the king's guard who had gone out to the king, the wise men of Babylon. He declared to Ariok, the king's captain, why is the decree of the king so urgent? Then Ariok made the matter known to Daniel and Daniel went in and requested the king to uh, requested the king to appoint him a time that he might show the interpretation to the king. So here's Daniel and his companions, kind of fresh out of Babylonian training school, still being, uh, still being dedicated to the Lord, but being considered a wise man, kind of caught up in this purge of Babylonian wise men. What is it that they're supposed to do? And so he goes and says, we just need a little bit of time and we're going to be able to solve this thing. Ultimately, not because Daniel considered himself to be wise, but Daniel knew that while the other magicians and sorcerers and Chaldeans, while those people relied on false gods, Daniel knew the one true God in heaven, who he knows has the answer to the problem. And so the Lord provides this For Daniel, he shows Daniel the mystery of the dream. Pick up in verse 17. Then Daniel went to his house and made the matter known to Hananiah, Mishael, Azariah, that's Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, his companions, and told them to seek mercy from the God of heaven concerning this mystery, so that Daniel and his companions might not be destroyed with the rest of the wise men of Babylon. Then the mystery was revealed to Daniel in the vision of a night. Then Daniel blessed the God of heaven, Daniel answered and said, and this is a prayer to God Blessed be the name of God forever and ever, to whom belongs wisdom and might. He changes times and season. He removes kings and sets up kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. He reveals deep and hidden things. He knows what is in the darkness, and the light dwells with him. To you, O God of my fathers, I give thanks and praise, for you have given me wisdom and might and have now made known to me what we asked of you for you have made known to us the king's matter. So Daniel goes to the Lord because he knows, I serve the one true living God and the one true living God knows all things. And not only does he know all things, he's in control of all things. And because he's in control of all things, if he wants us to know the answer to this dream, he'll tell us. And God does that. And Daniel professes worship towards God. And notice again who the central figure is here. The central figure is God. It's not earthly kings and their plans. It's God who sets up kings and removes them. It's not earthly wise men who need to know the dream before they know the interpretation. It's God who gives wisdom and has knowledge and reveals deep and hidden things. This is is the point of the the story is, is that God is the one who is in control, that God is the one who is sovereign over all things, that God is the one with answers to life's most difficult questions. God's not ever surprised by what's going on. God is not, not only is God not surprised by it, by the fact that he knows what's going on, both in history and the present and the future, but God's in direct control of it. And Daniel's prayer gives credence to this, that God knows and is in charge. And here's what we rest in today, Christian. We rest in the fact that even if we don't know what the answer to Some of the riddles of life are God does. If we don't know why things happen around us the way they happen, we can have full faith and assurance that God knows, that God is in control. And so Daniel goes to God. (laughs) You you notice all of the hand-wringing of the other wise men and sorcerers and all of this, this back and forth. Daniel says, oh, just give me a little time. And he goes to God and God reveals to it and Daniel professes his faith in God. He worships him because he is the king of the ages who knows and is in control of all things. And we pick up in verse 24. Then Daniel went to Arioch, whom the king had appointed to destroy the wise men of Babylon. He went and said thus to him, do not destroy the wise men of Babylon. Bring me in before the king and I will show the king the interpretation. Then Arioch brought in Daniel before the king in haste and said thus to him, I have found among the exiles from Judah a man who will make known to the king the interpretation. The king declared to Daniel, whose name was Belshazzar, are you about to make known to me the dream that I have seen and its interpretation? And Daniel answered, the king said, no wise men, enchanter, magicians or astrologers can show the king the mystery that the king has asked. But there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries. And he has made known to King Nebuchadnezzar what will be in the latter days. Your dream and the visions of your head as you lay in bed are these. To you, O king, as you lay in bed came thoughts of what would be after this. And he who reveals mysteries made known to you what is to be. But as for me, this mystery has been revealed to me, not because of any wisdom that I have, more than all the living, but in order that the interpretation may be known to the king and that you may know the thoughts of your mind. So not only does Daniel praise the Lord for, uh, for showing him this dream, Daniel goes into Nebuchadnezzar and doesn't you know, strut in there and say, I got it all figured out, king. No, no, he comes in. And what's the first thing he says to him? He says, nobody can do what you're wanting to do. So he says in verse 27, no wise man, enchanter, magician, or astrologer can show the king the mysteries that the king has asked. Nobody can do what you're asking, but there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries. And why does he reveal mysteries? Because nothing is mysterious to him. Rest in this today, believer. There is nothing in your life that is mysterious to God. There is nothing going on in this world around us that is mysterious to God. There is nothing that could happen to you tomorrow or the next day or ages to come if the Lord tarries that is mysterious to God. He is the one who reveals mysteries because nothing is mysterious to him. Now, before we move to the second half of this chapter, let me just quickly say, just because God revealed the mystery to Daniel doesn't mean that God in every case is going to answer us in the same way that he answered Daniel it would not be it would not be a demonstration of faith on our part if we demanded that of God if we said God there's a mystery in front of me and I need you to tell me exactly what that mystery means right now that would not be faith on our part because it's just not the way that God works The way that God works, he is the holder of all mysteries. He is the knower of all things. He is sovereign and providential over his entire creation. And we relate to him in faith, trusting that whether he tells us what's happening, he shows us why our path is leading the way it is, or we just put one foot in front of the other, following him in what seems like darkness. We do that in faith towards him. So no, church, if you're wondering today, you're you're not Daniel. You're, you're, You're not gonna go to sleep tonight and God's gonna give you some vision, likely. God's gonna give you some vision and you're gonna be able to figure out all of the pieces of the puzzle. But we know that he has all of the pieces of the puzzle. It's not even a puzzle to him. It may be to us, but it's not to him. He is in control. Then we get to the dream proper and its interpretation which shows us the kingdom of God versus the kingdoms of man. Verses 31 through 35, which we read at the beginning of our time this morning, is the dream itself, and verses 36 through 45 are Daniel's interpretation. So I'm gonna take each section of the dream and its interpretation together so that we can walk through them. It begins with a secession of ancient kingdoms. This is ultimately what the dream is, is the dream is the revelation of what is to come after, as Daniel has said in these previous verses, what is to come after Nebuchadnezzar, that that God is going to reveal to him what will happen in the centuries to come. So the first part of the dream, you saw, O O king, and behold, a great image. This image is a statue. The image mighty and of exceeding brightness stood before you, and its appearance was frightening. The head of the image was of fine gold, its chest and arms of silver, its middle and thighs of bronze, and its legs of iron so the majority of the statue is made up of pure metal going from top to bottom more precious metals to stronger metals so Daniel provides in verses thirty six through forty the interpretation of the dream. He says, this was the dream. Now we will tell you, king, it's interpretation. You, O king, the king of kings, to whom the God of heaven has given the, the kingdom, the power, and the might, and the glory, and into whose hands he has given, wherever he dwell, the children of man, the beasts of the field, and the birds of the heaven, making your rule over them all, you are the head of gold." Another kingdom inferior to you shall arise after you, and yet a third kingdom of bronze, which shall rule over all the earth. And there shall be a fourth kingdom strong as iron, because iron breaks to pieces and shatters all things. And like iron that crushes, it shall break and crush all these. So the image, head of gold, chest of silver, Midsection of bronze, leg of iron. What is it that Daniel says he sees? What Nebuchadnezzar sees in his dream, what God reveals to him, is the secession of empires. What will happen to the Babylonian Empire through the next several hundred years? And so, Old Testament scholars are in near complete agreement that this is what this represents. Again, Daniel 2 being one of the easier, outside of two verses, we'll get to in just a second, um, one of the easier images in the Old Testament, prophetic images in this book for us to understand. So the head, Daniel says, is you. It's Babylon. Now Babylon only existed for about 65 years, but they are in the Babylonian uh, empire at that time. And that is the head of gold. The second, the silver section, is the Medo-Persian Empire, which will replace Babylon. Like silver is lesser than gold, the Persian Empire would be lesser. It would be smaller than the Babylonian Empire, but it would last until 331 BC, about 208 years. So it is lesser, but it lasts longer. The section made of bronze represents the Empire of Greece, Starting with Alexander the Great. It lasts from 331 BC to 146 BC, 185 years. We're told that this kingdom, this bronze kingdom, shall rule over the whole earth. And that was the way people viewed the, the, the empire of Greece, that they conquered all of the known world. It wasn't literally the entire globe, but it was all of the known world in the context in which this is being written in. Then we get to the legs and its legs are made of iron. Iron is representing of Rome here. Now, depending on when you... Date the end of Rome. Rome could have existed, at least in some form or another, from 146 BC all the way to 1476 AD. So, about 1600 years, the Empire of Rome existed in one form or another. And the way that Daniel describes the iron legs of this statue describes Rome perfectly. It's strong as iron because iron breaks to pieces and shatters all things. And like iron that crushes, it shall break and crush all things. And that is a great description of the Roman Empire. That's what Rome did for centuries. Rome crushed all other, all other empires and challengers to its authority. So this is the vision. It is a vision of empire after empire, kingdom after kingdom, Babylon to Persia, to Greece, and to Rome. Rome. But then at the end, we're told there's a division of this last kingdom. At the end of verse 33, Daniel reveals that the dream of this statue, that its feet were partially of iron and partially of clay. Now, Daniel explains this in verses 41 through 43. He says, and as you saw the feet and toes, partially of potter's clay and partially of iron, it shall be a divided kingdom. But some of the firmness of iron shall be in it, just as you saw iron mixed with the soft clay. And as the toes of the feet were partially iron and partially clay, so the kingdom shall be partially strong and partially brittle. And you saw the iron mixed with soft clay, so they will mix with one another in marriage, but they will not hold together just as iron does not mix with clay. So as that final kingdom, that Roman kingdom progresses from the legs down into the feet, it begins to mix together with potter's clay and iron. Now potter's clay and iron don't mix together. So there's some striations in the feet, making the feet the weakest of the entire statue. And Daniel reveals that this is because there will be some mixture in this final kingdom. There there will be iron mixed with clay, and, and he gives one example of this in verse 43, and says, so they will mix with one another in marriage. So what's being described, at least in part of the Roman Empire, because this is still iron, it's just iron mixed with clay, is the intermarriages of cultures within Rome. Some even see here a foretelling of the division of east, of the Eastern Roman Empire and the Western Roman Empire, because there are two feet. Eventually, this would crumble right this is what clay mixed with iron would eventually do it would eventually crumble and there's no replacement for it now there's the fact that there's there's feet here right and and feet have feet have toes and there's, there's, you could read much about the uh, about the ten toes of this feet. If you if you want to take a deep dive into uh, da- and into this prophecy, by by all means you can do it. And here's what you're going to find: there starts to be some disagreement, some vast disagreement over what the <clears throat> over what the clay and the iron and the feet and the toes, what this all means. Now, here's what I'm going to do, and I'm not doing this. I'm, I'm doing it because. For the, for the sake of time today. In Daniel chapter seven, there is a very similar, some even say an identical vision, Just it's a different vision, but an identical interpretation or a very similar interpretation. And in there, there are 10 horns that come out uh, that, that represent the same thing as the 10 toes here. What will we'll save that for then? All right, so when we get to Daniel seven, we'll deal, with, we'll deal with the fact that there's 10 toes on the feet and 10 horns on this, on this beast, right? And and so we'll deal with that in a few weeks. Here's here's what we need to understand. That this image from, from gold to silver to bronze to iron is the Lord revealing what will happen. But the image is not the most important part. It's the part people wanna get fixated on, particularly as you get down there to the bottom. People wanna start getting fixated on the mixture of things. Um, And listen, I took a deep dive into this this week and I read people, I mean, all manner of things that what they think the mixture of clay and iron is. And so I think all of us need to come to this text with with a whole bunch of humility when we get to that part. But that's not the main point. The main point is that the this statue represents the kingdom of the world and the lord the stone of the lord that crushes all earthly kingdoms and fills the earth comes in and destroys this statue Look at verse 34. And as you looked, a stone was cut out by no human hands and it struck the image on its feet of iron and clay and broke them in pieces. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold all together were broken in pieces and became like chaff of the summer threshing floor. And the wind carried them away so that not a trace of them could be found. But the stone that struck the image became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. So the second piece to this dream is you have this Great statue that's fearful to behold, Daniel says. Meaning meaning this is this is an awe inspiring image And here comes this stone as if from nowhere. Here comes this stone that no man had formed, right? It was Formed in heaven. This is the stone of the Lord. This does not represent another empire. This is not some kind of worldly stone because it's a stone formed of the Lord. This stone is Jesus. Look at verses 44 and 45. In the days of that, in those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. It shall break in pieces all these kingdoms and bring them to an end, and it shall stand forever, just as you saw that a stone was cut from the mountain by no human hand, and that it broke in pieces the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold. A great God has made known to the king what shall be after this. The dream is certain, and its interpretation is sure. Now, there's a quick question that we need to ask, and that is, what is this actually describing? Is this describing the first coming of Jesus in the first century or is this describing the second coming of Jesus at the end of the age? My answer is both. Now you may say, well, that's kind of taking the easy way out, isn't it? No, I actually think it's taking the proper interpretation that when we take the totality of prophetic literature about the Messiah, here's what we see. We see see now and not yet. Not yet. We see both and and. And that's what I believe is being described here because what happens is this stone comes in. It's big enough to destroy the statue, but then what happens with the stone? It grows over time, it ultimately fills the whole earth. And so we are now in this moment where the stone has struck the statue. And the stone is now filling the whole earth. Jesus and his kingdom is what is on display here. And Here's what is important for us to know, that this rock came and smashed the kingdoms of the earth, and it is still smashing and growing until one day it fills the whole earth for all eternity. And that all that is left is God's kingdom the gold, the silver, the bronze, the iron, all are blown away. This was likely a surprise to Nebuchadnezzar. And I think it may even be a surprise in our day for people to hear this. There will come a day that there will be no memory of the kingdoms of this earth. No matter how valuable you think the one we currently live in is, It will one day be smashed by the stone of Jesus and flit away like chaff in the wind. It will all one day be reduced to dust, the great kingdoms of this world. And all that will remain is Christ. All that will remain is the kingdom of God. That is what will be left. There is no kingdom of this world that will stand against it. Text continues, there's a response from Nebuchadnezzar. There are a couple of responses actually from Nebuchadnezzar that speaks to how we then live in the meantime, how Daniel and his companions were expected to live in Babylon in the meantime, and how we, exiles in this world, part of the kingdom of God and yet still living in the kingdom of man are expected to live in the meantime as the kingdom of God continues to grow and expand. On the first of several occasions here in Daniel 2, Nebuchadnezzar recognizes the power of the Lord. Verses 46 and 47. Then Nebuchadnezzar fell upon his face and paid homage to Daniel and commanded that an offering of incense be offered up to him. You notice he got it wrong. He offers it to Daniel, not to the Lord. Then the king answered and said to Daniel, Truly your God is God of gods and Lord of kings and a revealer of mysteries, for you have been able to reveal this mystery. Nebuchadnezzar recognizes the Lord but shows no real change of life, offers incense to Daniel or any kind of loyalty to him. Daniel chapter 3 will prove this for us as in the next chapter Nebuchadnezzar sets out to actually build this statue for himself. What does this mean for us? It shows us that the world may see some good in our message. There are things about the gospel message that the world identifies as good and as culture progresses and regresses and and kingdoms of of, of the world come and go, there are varying aspects of Christianity, varying aspects of what God is doing through his people that cultures have embraced over the period of time. It doesn't make a culture Christian. It doesn't make a culture godly or holy, just as it didn't make Nebuchadnezzar godly or holy. But he recognized something. Here, that God was able to do something that all of his other wise men were unable to do. But he does not embrace God. And we'll see that through the rest of his life. Daniel and his companions, though, were promoted and expand their earthly influence. In the last two verses here, the king gave Daniel high honor and many great gifts and made him ruler over the whole province of Babylon and chief uh, prefect of all the wise men of Babylon, Daniel, was, uh, Daniel made a request of the king and he appointed Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego over the affairs of the province of Babylon, but Daniel remained at the king's court. So these four are placed in very high positions of influence. Again, this is God. As we saw last week, as we'll continue to see uh, throughout the narrative portion of Daniel, God continues to place his people while in exile in positions to accomplish his goal. And this is what the prophet told them to do. There were prophets that wrote to exiles, Jeremiah being one of them in Jeremiah chapter 29. He says, thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel to all exiles, whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon, build houses and live in them, plant gardens and eat their produce, take wives and have sons and daughters, take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters, multiply there and do not decrease but seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf for in its welfare, you will find your welfare. So because we live in an earthly kingdom, not an earthly kingdom represented in this statue, but nonetheless, we live as all other people do around our globe in an earthly kingdom. What should our response be to that earthly kingdom? You should have the same kind of perspective that the Old Testament exiles had of theirs. They worked for its good. They followed the instructions of Daniel here. They sought the welfare of their city. Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego didn't didn't ascend to these levels of influence and then try to bring down Babylon. They worked for the good of Babylon. That was what the prophets instructed them to do. That's what we should do. We We should work for the good of our... World, we should work for the good of the place that God has placed us. We should seek to do godly good in it, all while recognizing that one day all of this will be nothing. Just as Daniel knew and saw in his lifetime that the great empire of Babylon faded into history and was replaced by the Persian Empire. That which we live in too will one day be dust. And yet we are called to serve within this culture and to serve within our world, being faithfully obedient to God who knows and orchestrates all things. So what? Jesus Christ, the Lord's crushing stone, establishes an eternal kingdom that fills his creation. I recognize I've gone long. It's a long chapter, okay? So you're going to have to give me an extra five minutes here. To miss, to miss Jesus as the stone is to miss all of Daniel too okay? If, 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 if all we see is the rise and fall of empires and not how God, the, the means by which God destroys them is to miss the meaning. This passage is looking forward to Jesus, who is the crushing stone of the Lord who establishes an earthly ki- who establishes an eternal kingdom that will never fade away that will fill the entirety of God's creation Jesus saw himself as the stone in Luke 20 he says what then why then is it written the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces and when it falls on anyone it will crush him A stone is a regular metaphor, both in the Old Testament and the New Testament, for the coming Messiah. Jesus regularly referred to himself as the cornerstone of God. The apostles referred to him likewise. We need to see Jesus here as the stone of Daniel chapter 2 that destroys earthly kingdoms and fills the earth, ultimately to fulfill what we read in Psalm 2 because Psalm 2 is a messianic Psalm. Psalm 2 is a Psalm that's looking towards the, reign, the eternal reign of the Messiah. And the psalmist writes, why do the nations rage and the people plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord, against his anointed saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cord from us. Then in verse seven, I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the end of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. So in the time of Rome, a stone came that destroyed the kingdoms of this world. And we live in a moment of expectation. We live in a time of anticipation as that stone grows and fills the earth looking towards the second return of Jesus when he will reign and rule forever as the anointed one of God who breaks apart and dashes to pieces all of the kingdoms of this earth. So my question for you today, my friend, is, is your faith in that stone of God? Because you may rant and rave about the kingdoms of this world, But ultimately, there is nothing you can do to bring them down. But Jesus can. You may, on the other hand, put your faith in the kingdoms of this world. And then think by some line of heritage and some blessing of birth, being born in a certain place, it has given you some kind of standing with God that you don't have. That stone will crush you too but through faith in the one who has crushed the kingdoms of this world and is filling the world with his kingdom, we can be right with God. This is what Jesus did on the cross for us, crushing sin and death and calling people to himself so that we might be saved and be a part of his kingdom. Have faith in that today as you watch things happen around our world, as they have happened for millennia since, know this, God is not surprised. God is not in control. And the kingdom of God is the one thing that will endure for all eternity. Let's pray together. God, we thank you today for Jesus, the crushing stone of the Lord, that demolishes kingdoms in this world that reduces them to dust that blow away, never to be remembered again, but that you are establishing your kingdom through your people right now. We rejoice in that, O God, that you use us for your glory. Would you use us, God, to bring more people into your kingdom as it continues to fill this earth? And we long for the day that Jesus returns and we can know this kingdom and live in this kingdom For all eternity with you, we pray. In Christ's name, amen.